Well, as long as there is a Bible and people who follow the God of the Bible, people will be talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. Poems will be written, sermons preached, movies made. It is perhaps the most famous event in the history of Israel and you cannot understand the history of Israel without understanding this one event that we heard read to us just before. In fact, you can't understand Christian history apart from this one event that we heard read before. For the crossing of the Red Sea became the central act on this side of God's cross, God's redemptive act to save his people. It's the event that the Israelites kept telling themselves about over and over and over. I don't know if you're like this, but often in families there's stories. There's stories that have been passed down, stories that are, that are foundational to families that are told. And perhaps they're told by people that weren't even there. There's a, there's a story in my family that's a foundational story. It's a story of my great-great-grandfather who was a man who was uh, born on this small island in Greece. He had some olive groves in the mainland of Turkey and somehow he got caught up in the Turkish Mafia. He was, uh, he was beaten up, but he had enough strength to swim from the Turkish coast to his island, two kilometres, and he uh, was able to knock on the door of his wife, of his house, and his wife came and was able to attend to him and he survived. This is a story that I've heard. It's a story that was uh, foundational to my family. It taught me something about my family even though I wasn't there. And this is, this is the one story that the family of God's people kept telling over and over and over again. Hear this. Deuteronomy chapter 11, consider today what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued him. Psalm 78 verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the water stand like a heap. Psalm 106 verse 8, yet he saved them for his name that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. Isaiah 51 verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed people to pass over? You see, this was the story that Israel kept telling themselves, kept telling themselves beyond the events that had occurred, kept telling themselves generation after generation. When God wanted to steal their resolve towards obedience, he said, remember what God did for you at the Red Sea. When they were wandering and needed God's discipline, he said, do not forget what I did for you in the Red Sea. When they came to doubt the goodness of God's of God's goodness and power, God said, remember when I divided the waters of the Red Sea and swallowed up your enemies. See, the crossing of the Red Sea, this one moment in all of the history of Israel is crucial. 
It's crucial for them to understand who they are as God's people. And it's a turning point in the narrative of the book of Exodus. If you want to open up to the book of Exodus there in Exodus 14, have a look there in verse 10, because you see where the Egyptian army is chasing Israel as they leave. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. We saw a little bit of this last week. This is the predicament that God's people are in. This is the problem. And when we last left the Israelites, Moses was telling them to be silent. They were full of complaint, protest and fear because all they saw were the Egyptians. But you might remember from our reading from the end of chapter 14, in the book of Exodus, at the end, all they see is dead Egyptians. They've gone from seeing Egyptians approaching in fear to now seeing at the end of the chapter God's great power. And that's, I think, really what this chapter is about. And this is what makes it so pivotal in the history of Israel. It's a demonstration of who God is. It's a demonstration of what God does for his people. It's a demonstration of his power in saving his people. See there in verses 15 and 16, the Lord says to Moses, Now is the time to go. Of course, God's people had no idea where to actually go. They were trapped between this invincible army and this unmovable sea. And they're told it's time to move because it was time for God to act. And I like how one commentator puts it. He says, when did God act? The answer, at precisely the moment when all hope seemed lost. That's when God likes to act most, because it's when he receives the glory. It would have been abundantly clear to everyone that in this salvation moment, in God's people coming through the Red Sea, this was God's mighty hand at work. There were no illusions of grandeur for God's people in this situation. It wasn't that they were smart and that they had a great plan. It was that last week they were trapped and they had no way out. And that's exactly where God wanted them. God wanted them to be in a place where they did not know what to do. And I think that's God's way of saying when God's people are feeling like that, when they're feeling like there's no way out, when this is impossible, that's God's way of saying, wait, this is going to be good. It looks desperate. It looks hopeless. But that's when God acts. And we see God act. We see his power really in a number of ways. So I want to have a look at that. I want to have a look at how we see God's power in this chapter. First of all, we see God's power in 
the hearts of his enemies. We see his sovereign sway over the hearts of his enemies there in verse 17. It says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. You see, this was God's doing. Because no chariot commander would ever send his troops in the midst of some murky, muddy, former sea. There would be walls of water on either side. Getting expensive chariots bogged down in the mud is the last thing that the Egyptians wanted. It makes no sense in some ways that they would want to pursue God's people into the mouth of the lion, so to speak. And after ten plagues, you would have thought that the Egyptians might have caught on, but this is the God who can do things that are out of the ordinary. But they act because God is at work, swaying the hearts of his enemies. And this happens. This happens. And it happens in our lives too. Because just as it didn't make sense for the chariots to follow God's people through that murky, muddy flat, the same is true for us. Sin does not make sense. We can understand allure and temptation, but at the heart of it, sin is completely irrational. It's a type of insanity. And maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've seen this in your life, in your lives. You've seen this in the lives of others. You, you look at the certain choices that people make and you think there's no reason why they do this. Why would they throw away everything for just something of sin? Why would they do that? But sin, the reality of sin is it doesn't make us smart. Sin makes us insane. And here sin, hardened in the Egyptians' hearts, leads them to stupidity. Let's go and pursue them into the Red Sea. But God had such sovereign sway over them that they did it. And their wheels are clogged and they're thrown into a panic and then he finally throws them into the sea. Such is his power and sovereign sway of the hearts of his enemies. So firstly, we see God's power in the hearts of his enemies. Secondly, we see his power in his care and provision. You see there in verse 19, the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went in front, sorry, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of the cloud also moved in front and stood behind them. You see what's going on here. The angel of God and the pillar are, I think, one and the same. Just two different ways of describing God being at work, his visible presence amongst his people. God could even say to the Israelites, I'm literally going to move heaven and earth for you. All of God's people should not have doubted him because of his presence with them. 
He's given them this cloud. He's directing and he's guiding them. He lights it up for them at night and he gives an angel to protect them and hold the Egyptian army at bay. See, God's power is seen in his care and his provision for his people. He's with them. He's present with them and he's caring for them. Thirdly, we see God's power in his control of nature. Have a look there in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the dry went through, sorry, went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, for those of us who have been reading the Bible for a little while, when we read verses 21 and 22, we actually see echoes of the creation story and also of the flood in Noah's day. Because the Hebrew word, the word that the Old Testament uses for wind or spirit is translated as the word ruach. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the waters. In Noah's day, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God made a wind, a Ruach, blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And here again, in Exodus chapter 14, we have this Spirit of God, this east wind that's blowing through the Red Sea, then just as at creation, dry ground appears out of this watery mess. Listen to the language of Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry ground appear. The Spirit of God, the dry ground appearing, is a is a symbol of what occurred in creation. And this is significant because the Red Sea event, this salvation event, is seen as, in the writer's mind, a a creative act of God. The God who made the world. The God who separated the waters to make the world such that the dry land would appear is the same God who's at work here. He's remaking the world, if you like, through this event. In Noah's day, he sent another wind to separate the waters, to separate the waters, to uh, show the dry ground. And here now, in this salvation event, in this Exodus, it's as if God is creating again. He's creating again a new people, a new nation a new land, a new day in this event. When the divine wind blows, separating these waters, there is more than just a miracle that heaps water on either side. This is God's creative power being unleashed for his people. Thirdly, we see God's power in his victory over his enemies. You see there in verse 28, 
The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, with none of them surviving. Finally, we see God's power in the way in which he swallows up Pharaoh's army, his horsemen. And this is a a refrain that's repeated again and again. It's not just that God has saved his people. It's that he's brought victory over his enemies. And in fact, he can only save because he's brought victory over his enemies. That's why it's, I think that's why it's a phrase that's repeated that, that, the, uh, that the Egyptians were, were covered in that sea. Part of what we are meant to see is that God has a way of turning the strengths of his enemy against themselves. See, what made Egypt so powerful? What made them uh, unconquerable? Well, it was their chariots. It was their horsemen. And so what does God do? Well, he turns their great strength against them. It's their military might that God chooses to show his victory in. And so we see God's power in this way. We see there this great contrast in verses 10 to verse 31. Because if you have a look there in verse 10, at the start, where they could only see the Egyptians and their power, we, we read that they feared. But by the end of this chapter there in verse 31, I don't know if you noticed it when it was being read, there's a great change there in verse 31. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Earlier on in the chapter, they feared the Egyptians and disbelieved Moses. But now, because of this salvation event, because of the demonstration of God's power in nature, in hardening the hearts, in giving victory over the enemies, now they fear the Lord and they believe Moses. See, this is what the power of God is supposed to do. It's not just there to impress us. The power of God is intended to lead us from fear to faith. And time and time again we see that when God works in the Old Testament, he, and particularly in the Exodus event, we see God's people encouraged by God's power to trust in him. And this is a great lesson for us because many of us at times have trouble trusting God. We're caught up in the fears that we have. And I think the Bible appreciates that human people have all kinds of fears. And indeed, that's why I think we see the journey that God is taking his people on from fear to faith. And this is the normal part of the Christian life. Um, I think it'd be lovely for us to say that we trust in God all the time and we have no fear of anything. 
And I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, although we continue to trust in God, we do deal and struggle with many fears. And often, um, often our trust of God does fade over time. The stories that we once heard that gave us great hope perhaps are a little less prominent in our minds and we forget God's power. There's a great reminder for us here this morning is that when we are caught in fear, when we're in that situation where it just looks like there's no way out, when things look impossible, we're reminded this morning this is when God acts. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Which is like the Israelites, often doubting God's power. When we look at the world around us, when we look at what's happening, often we wonder, is God? God's gospel going to really save people? We ought to be reminded, friends, that we were in an impossible situation. We were in a situation that there was no way out. We were dead. The New Testament reminds us that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses when we were apart from Christ. We were born into a world absolutely spiritually dead, no one seeks after God, the Romans said. We were bent against him. We were blind to him. And yet here we are, gathered to hear his word, to pray to him, to sing his praises. And so this morning, if we belong to the Lord Jesus, we have experienced a great power. We have experienced the miraculous power of God every bit as great as the parting of the Red Sea. We've been given a new heart. We've had our sins forgiven. He's opened our blind eyes. He's inclined our hearts to precious things instead of worthless things. He has done that by his great power. This is a God who is at work. He was at work in a very demonstrable way through the Exodus. And he's at work in the same way in our lives too. If only we could see that we were trapped. If only we could see that we had nowhere to run. If only we could see that it's the gospel that has saved us. And that same gospel is at work in our world by his spirit, through his power. And so this morning, I want to ask us, are we willing to trust God with our fear? Are we willing to go through that movement of acknowledging our fear and being reminded of God's power and his salvation in the Lord Jesus? Luke chapter 9 verse 30, which was read to us, says that Jesus is there and he's up a mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are there with him. And it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his 
departure. The word for departure is literally exodus. You see, what we have in the Lord Jesus is, is our crossing of that Red Sea, our salvation, the great deliverance that he has brought, out, brought us out of. And this power is at work in us. And this power is at work as we declare the gospel to those who don't know him. Amen. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would convict us, that you would change us from our, the very depths of our being. Convict us of the reality of our spiritual condition before our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have brought us out by the death of your Son. And we ask, Father, that we would be reminded of your power, the power of your gospel, the power that saved us and the power that can save others. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.